Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters two eminent scholars of the Amnia Muslim community. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters once again. For uh, some of our viewers who are perhaps not familiar with our program, to my immediate right is, of course, Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Saab. And to his right, of course, is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the French desk here in the UK and one of our very respected missionaries here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Jahangir Saab. Welcome to Faith Matters. We're going to travel to Suriname for our first question, which comes from Nasreen Sahi Bali. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for your question. Uh, gentlemen, her question is specifically about uh, a hadith, uh, which she's referenced in her question from uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, one of the uh, six authentic hadith uh, books uh, of these sort of sayings and the, of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And she, I, I will paraphrase it somewhat. The, um, this relates to a quote from uh, Jabir bin Abdullah, who said, the people became, and I quote, the people became very thirsty on the day of Al-Hudaybah, the treaty. A small pot containing some water was in, placed in front of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And when he had finished the ablution, the people rushed towards him. He asked, what is wrong with you? They replied, we have no water either for performing ablution or for drinking. The hadith continues. It was then reported that he placed his hand upon the pot and water began flowing, um, flowing amongst his fingers and everyone who was there both drank of that water and were able to perform ablution. The question uh, Nasreen Saiba has is what is meant when it is said in the hadith that the water which flowed from the Holy Prophet's wasallam's fingers, did that actually happen? Is it real, Jahangir uh, Well. The thing is that uh, it's a well-known thing about the prophets and messengers of God that um, God demonstrates many miracles at their hands. And uh, to say that uh, these miracles go against the laws of nature is not correct. First of all, we, we can't um, you know, just say that we know all the, the laws of nature. That, that would be a very tall you know, thing, a, a, a tall call to make. Um, we know many of the laws of nature, but there are certainly many laws of nature which are still being discovered you know, by modern science. And it is true that the laws which govern the creation of, uh, of matter from nothing are, have not yet been discovered. It is, however, known that our whole universe came into being from nothing. So it's definitely something which, which has occurred at least once uh, to the knowledge of uh, modern science. Um, but we do find these stories of prophets, you know, where they're actually using something which is very small in volume 
to either give to, to others you know, in, in their thousands to eat or to drink. Um, so there are two things at play here. First of all, if the report seems to be an authentic one according to the chain of, na of narrators, in that case we would accept that there was a miracle which was obviously must have been on, uh, of sudden magnitude for, for it to have been remembered as such, otherwise it wouldn't have been reported. But the fact remains that something which would not have sufficed for, the, for a, a large party of people on the day sufficed. And this is one of the miracles of the power of God's you know, creation, that he can create out of nothing. Or he can magnify something which is very small and, and make it become very large. So this is a fact, and it has been repeatedly reported from the prophets of God, so therefore we do believe in it. Uh, but we are, we are careful with the figures, nevertheless. I think following on from <coughs> Jangisab's point there, um, I think Nasreen Saiba has also quoted in her question that she recalls from reading one of the fourth Khalifa of the Amdiya Muslim community, Mirza Tayyamad, in his book about Christianity from facts to fiction, that even then he stated quite explicitly that miracles, when we read about them, whatever source we read about them from, that they should be kept in the context and nothing can go against the force of nature. And um, just to expand on that a bit more, Dr. Zaitsev, I suppose it <coughs> means, again, picking up a thread from what Jahangir said, that if you've got a cup of water here and there's 10 people around a table, the fact that each one had drunk from it may mean that each one had just taken the sip, but because of, say, if there was a blessed person here or the blessings of Allah Almighty or whatever that Allah himself allowed that sip to be sufficient to quench the thirst of that individual. Yes, I think you've uh, hit, hit on a point there uh, and I think we have to understand miracles from, from that angle too and as Jahangir Saab uh, has explained that we do not understand fully the nature of God and what his natures are but Allah does say that he does not go against his nature in the Holy Quran and that we know, for instance, life and death are mm. laws of nature, and Allah does not actually change those laws of nature to that degree. But miracles have also to be understood, not always on a metaphorical basis, but sometimes on a literal basis as well. So we have to see how the interpreter of hadith as well has been interpreting a certain incident, and there may be a, a personal interpretation of what actually took place on that occasion. Having said that, we do uh, know that during the lifetime of different prophets of God, during the lifetime of the Holy Prophet wasallam, there are several incidents of miracles of this nature that come to mind. There is an incident of a bowl of milk that sufficed a large number of companions. And the companion, Hazrat Abu Huraira, who was actually the one who was very thirsty and hungry, actually was given the bowl of milk the last after everybody had drunk from him and he thought, what is going to be left in this? But this was the blessing that was bestowed upon it. From a medical view, we may understand it as such that there are centers in the brain which are to do with hunger and which are to do with thirst. And it may be that Allah the Almighty has got some, uh, obviously Allah has got control over them. And that when only a sip or a very small sip of milk or water has entered into the body, that actually triggers the brain to say, that's my fill, I cannot have any more. Mm -hmm. And so we may explain it from that angle, that that could have been an explanation, and that is keeping within the laws of nature of God Almighty, isn't it? 
other prophets of God certainly have, uh, have also exhibited the certain uh, same type of miracles. The incident of Jesus, alayhi salam. Feeding of the 5,000 with mm. two loaves yeah. and, and the fish yes. is another one of these miracles that was given to Jesus to show his truth as being the prophet of God who was actually supported by Allah the Almighty. So that is another incident. And then in our own time, I say in our own time, Hazrat Masih Maud, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, he also was given uh, uh, signs and miracles to show his truth and there is an incident of some sweet rice that was brought out and that also sufficed a great number of people. So miracles do take place, they take place within the boundaries of the limits of the laws of nature and there may be an explanation of that nature but certainly they have taken place as such. Just before we move on, there's another thing which perhaps is also appropriate that if you're witnessing something and you're writing about an individual, whoever that individual may be, and you have great affection and respect and reverence for that individual. Sometimes when you write, your language will be perhaps less objective and more subjective. And I think that's often the case. And, you know, leaving holy personages out of this, one could even make it relevant to their own lives. So what your perspective on an individual may be would be different to well, someone else's. Emb embellishment, of course, is a, is a, a human trait. And when you, uh, when you said that, of course, you rightly pointed it out. If you love somebody, you have respect for somebody, then you might tend to, to, see, to read into it a little bit more than you know, what it actually is. But as Dr. Saab has, has said very well, these miracles have occurred. And although in certain instances it may well have been a case of you know, God giving them the, 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 you know, making them reach the level of, of uh, uh, where, they, where they're satiated, much faster than they would have been you know, normally. But these things have happened and have been reported. What the nature of it is is another matter. But we do uh, uh, accept that these miracles are shown by prophets. It's one, it's one of the features, if you want, of, of the you know, people who have this uh, divine power behind them. And it's also one of the reasons why people believe in them as well. So we can't you know, write it all off as uh, you know, hocus pocus either. That would be unfair to them because they are the most sincere and the most truthful people. But we have to try and find a way to understand the phenomena. And the best way to understand these is to see the explanations given by the Imam of the time, who is the founder of the, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizahullah Muhammad He himself has demonstrated these, uh, you know, these kinds of miracles. And he has always explained them in very simple terms, how God manifests his power according to his own laws. And, that he, and he's clearly said, that people think they know all the laws of nature, but there are other laws, and these might be discovered in the future, we don't know. Mm -hmm. But for the moment anyway, we can't explain everything. N not everything is uh, explicable as we stand. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, for that, and as you rightly summarized there, that miracles are also uh, a sign of the truth of prophethood as well, uh, because of course these are messages sent by, sent by God Almighty. And my thanks also to Nasreen Saiba for your question. Um, our next question comes from Mikhail Rose. Um, first of all, he extends a salam uh, to the panel and also thanks the panel for his previous question that he asked on atheists and the fact that the Holy Quran has said nothing about the expansion of the universe. He said the answer that he was given, and that's 
uh, kind of you to send in your remarks, was extremely useful, and he said in his discussions, it's put an end to such allegations. So, Jazakumullah for your feedback as well, Mikhail. His question, gentlemen, relates to ancient Babylon, and he says, growing up as a child, he often heard that Nimrod was the king of Babylon, and he was worshipped almost like a god. Um, and it's written, uh, there's various narrations around this, that at one time God sent a swarm of mosquitoes. One went up his, his nostril into his nose, so much so that, you know, basically he lost his own faculties. He was unable to function. Um, first of all, he says, is there any truth to this particular event that he talks about? And secondly, is there something to learn from this in history. Um, Dr. Saf, if I could start with you, first of all. I mean, this is something which I think here in, in the UK as well, in a lot of Western countries, anyone who's sort of had some sense of Christianity around them, some, something certainly you'll find sort of narrated in Christian circles. <clears throat> yes, we find in, in Scripture in Genesis, then that is the basis for the uh, reference to Nimrod. He was actually said to be the great-grandson of uh, Hazrat Nuh, salam, the Prophet of God and son of Kush. And as you have said, that he was a very powerful uh, leader, monarch, king of, of ba Babylon, the ancient Babylon. Uh, as far as uh, being brought up here, this is what we have been taught in schools and so on, that he was a powerful king. But he was uh, obviously one that did not worship God. Uh, and uh, in fact, people worshipped him uh, as, as, as the God. But as far as Islam is concerned and references to Nimrod in, in, by name in the Holy Quran or Hadith, we do not find that mentioned. But we do find that Hazrat Ibrahim mm -hmm. he actually uh, was at the time in, in discussions with a powerful king of Babylon at the time and we think that this may be the same Nimrod who was this at the same time as, as Hazrat Ibrahim So there was a debate about the existence of God, about God being present or not. And of course, Hazrat Ibrahim being a prophet of God was, uh, was, was uh, full knowledge of the existence of God, whereas Nimrod wasn't. And it was because of this conflagration that Hazrat Ibrahim was actually put into the fire to burn him and the fire was by the command of Allah cooled down and there was obviously no, no harm that Hazrat Ibrahim came. So as far as by name is concerned, we do not find in the Holy Quran or the traditions of the Holy Prophet a direct reference to Nim Nimrod as such. So our knowledge of this comes from biblical or ancient texts that are, that are present in man. Again, it's something that, as Dr. Zaisab's explained, has its basis in uh, Genesis, or comes from Genesis and Christianity, and Islam doesn't have a basis. But linked to that, um, there is a link story of the Tower of Babel, which uh, Mikhail also refers to in his question, <coughs> that Nimrod supposedly had built this huge tower, which is also mentioned in the Bible. And there are also pictures, and this was supposed to be kind of a fountain of learning, and uh, you know, new, new things would emanate from this particular tower. Is there any truth to that? Is there an Islamic basis to this as well? <clears throat> well, there were many things which are said about Nimrod, as such as Dr. Saab has said, there aren't any, uh, there isn't any direct reference to him by name in the Quran. Uh, in the Hadith, also, it's not very clear about you know Nim Nimrod being the same king as the one who was debating with Abraham, mm -hmm. peace be upon him. 
and many things have been said about him, but we have to realize that in, in, uh, we have to go back to Islamic history for, to understand this issue. There were many Jews and Christians who became Muslim at the very beginning of Islam. And they brought in their, because obviously there was a bit of a, an overlap, you know, between their religion and Islam, because Islam um, uses some of the same prophets to illustrate very important lessons in the Holy Quran. So because they already knew about these prophets and their lives from their own sources, often they would amal amalgamate the two, so their own knowledge of the stories and whatever the Qur'an would say. And what, what, what was born out of this was a kind of an oral tradition which was passed down like stories um, by the people who had uh, originally been Jews or Christians. And they became part and parcel of the general so-called knowledge of the Muslims. And they did find their way, unfortunately, even into the tafasir, which are the commentaries of the Holy Quran uh, uh, themselves. And it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult task to be able to extricate the, tr the true from the false or the authentic from the inauthentic. This was one of the main tasks of the Imam Mahdi to have to you know, differentiate between these. One of the stories was that he was killed by a mosquito which entered into his nostril and which drove him crazy. Yeah. He died of that. So did that happen or not? We really don't know because we don't have any uh, authentic source for, for this you know, in Islam. But we do find the story being told by Muslims, the reason being that it came in with what is called Israeliyat. It's the stories of the Israelites which have come in from that source, from the converts mm -hmm. to Islam. Now, as far as the, the Tower of, of Babel is concerned, it doesn't seem to be something which stands to reason. There was no mention of it in the Quran at all. Because it seems like God had a plan for people. He planned that they should all speak one language. But because they wanted to build a tower to go and see him, mm -hmm. so to, to punish them, he gave every man among them a different tongue to speak mm -hmm. so that they could no longer communicate with each other. This is a biblical tale. And so the building had to end because they couldn't communicate. Mm -hmm. Now, not entering into all the, the difficulties of who did they speak those languages to afterwards? I mean, did God also strike some of the women as well with the same you know, disease that they had to start speaking a different language so that they could at least speak to somebody? You know, so there are many, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a Pandora's box. Once you open it, there'll, there'll be no end to the problems. So this seems to be an exaggeration or an, even an invented story which is added into the Bible later on. And this is why it's not mentioned in the Quran at all. On the contrary, God in the Holy Quran says that he has a plan for people. He had always planned for people to come from one source and then to diverge. And the reason which is given, as I'm going to read uh, two short verses here. You have in Surah Al-Hujurah, which is chapter 49, verse 14. A'udhu billahi min shaitanir rajim, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ya ayyuhan nasu, inna khalaqanakum min dhakarin wa untha, waj'alnakum shu'uban wa qaba'ila lita'arafu. Inna akramakum indallahi atqaakum, innallaha alimun khabir, which means... O mankind, we have created you from a man, from a male and a female, a man and a woman, or a male and a female. And we have made you into tribes and sub-tribes that you may recognize one another. So the main thing is that you could recognize one another. And this is a very important thing, we can come back to that, but verily the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is most righteous among you. So surely Allah is all-knowing, all-aware, so nobody should think that because they belong to this tribe or this sub-tribe or this nation or this people or race, that they're superior to anybody else. Allah says that out of all these tribes, the, the, the superior one in my sight is the most pious one, mm -hmm. the, the most God-fearing one. But it is indeed very interesting 
that God has created all these different types of people so that they can recognize each other because imagine a world, the, the aim of, of the whole thing is to have a world which is united and unified in the end. Imagine a world where everybody looks alike. Mm. How difficult it would be for the, the law, the agencies, you know, to, to run after criminals when, when a description of people would be very much similar all the time. Mm -hmm. So this helps people to recognize each other. Also, because of the interactions of the, of the languages and the cultures and the knowledge that every di different people have, which is, which is just for them, people have been able to benefit to large degrees. Mm -hmm. So many studies, so many sciences have been born out of these differences. The differences of genetics, that's a whole world in itself, mm -hmm. you know, and epigenetics as well, which has to do with this. So the, the second verse, so as I'm saying, it's, 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 it's a, a source of great advantage to people. The second verse is in Ar-Rum, which is chapter 30, and it's verse 23. وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاخْتِلَافُ أَلْسِنَاتِكُمْ وَأَلْوَانِكُمْ إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتٍ لِلْعَالِمِينَ And among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors. In that surely are signs for those who possess knowledge. And this is a, a verse rich with, uh, with meaning. But here again God says that he's actually made our colors and languages a sign for people who have knowledge. So they will see signs in these things, you see. And it's not like a punishment for having been arrogant and tried to see God by building a tower that he's inflicted humanity, humanity with this. This was a natural process which God wanted to happen. And the very interesting thing which has recently come uh, to light in science, if I may say, it's that uh, it was, you know, there's a lot of debate going on on uh, evolution mm -hmm. and how far the genome actually represents, uh, 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 how would I say, a link between different creatures. Are they really related? Does ha you know the, how much you, you, you resemble another animal in your genome? Mm -hmm. How much does that dictate your relatedness to, to that other animal or that other creature? Mm -hmm. And this has been thrown into the mix now. There are many scientists who don't agree, who say that even if your genome looks very similar to another genome, that does not mean that you come from the same source necessarily. And they show, for example, that uh, the same genome is used by a caterpillar as is by a butterfly. It's exactly the same genome, but it's two completely different body, bodies and shapes and functions, and it's like two separate creatures. Somebody coming from another planet, seeing a caterpillar and a butterfly would never know that this is actually the same creature. They have exactly the same genome. So something else is at play here. And it's very interesting because you see, the genome of human beings is very much the same. Whatever human being you'll take, it will have pr practically the same genome as another human being. But it's the way it's being read which makes them, the, in the epigenetics in particular, which makes them look different from each other. So the same text is being read in a different way, to, put in a, you know, to give a similitude. And the very same thing is happening uh, in the languages. For example, if you take the word uh, chat in English, the same letters, C-H-A-T, will be read in one way and will be understood in one way. But if you take the same letters, C-H-A-T, in French, it will mean cat. And there are so many examples of this. So God is saying that you're in your colors and your languages, there are signs for those who have knowledge. So as I said, this verse has a richness of meanings, and there are so many other meanings there. But the basic answer to the question would be, therefore, that this is in the plan of God. The plan was not to have people together and then punish them by giving them different languages. It was all along 
to give them different languages and colours anyway. It defines people. Yes. And perhaps also, I mean, uh, there's significance, isn't it, that collectively, when, um, whether it's the Tower of Babel, but when we talk of places of worship, for example, whatever faith we talk about, that people come together in, in, in unity uh, and in remembrance of God Almighty in a single place and through their own language are able to communicate with God Almighty. So uh, anyway, that, that, that will open up another uh, raft of questions, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure um, in the answers you've given, of course, gentlemen, as ever detailed. And uh, my thanks also to Mikhail for his question. Um, we'll move on to our next question, which comes from uh, North America and Canada, in fact, from Maria Khan. Assalamu alaikum, Maria. Thank you for your question. She's t taking us into the realms of psychics, um, individuals who have a notable... I mean, we, we've all seen it. They're advertised in newspapers, on the television. Wherever you go, these are these people who will predict your future, who will... You go to them. I mean, gone are the days of turning up at a circus and seeing a lady with a crystal ball, but these people make a business out of it. Um, and uh, Maria is saying that in her discussion with uh, one of her Muslim friends... Her friend pointed out that such psychics are considered absolutely as haram within the context of Islam, forbidden. Um, and her explanation was that only Allah has knowledge of the unseen and no one else. So from that, Maria is asking, according to Islamic teachings, are there any individuals who refer to themselves psychics? Does, do psychics have a base within Islam? And is it indeed forbidden to seek predictions from them? So a raft of different questions. Dr. Saib, if I could start with you on this, is there any basis in Islam for such people who claim to be able to tell fortunes? People indeed no, predict our, the future. No, our, our basis on that or negating that is that, as Maria has also pointed out, that only Allah the Almighty has knowledge of both the seen and the unseen. And this is repeatedly mentioned in the Holy Quran, and this is something that we know for sure that we do believe in fully. However, Allah does reveal himself, in fact. This is another thing that we know from the Holy Quran and from the uh, uh, history of Islam and history of religions, is that Allah does reveal himself and reveal secrets of the unseen to whomsoever he chooses. And this is where the realm of prophethood actually does come in. So that Allah has, has his chosen servants to whom he does reveal the actually the unseen. And that forms a part of the process by which people are able to recognize that this is a man who has been sent by God, who has been given um, revelations about the future which do come true. So that, that is certainly the case. Allah does reveal himself to ordinary people as well through, through sometimes true dreams. So sometimes knowledge of a forthcoming event is given to an individual through a dream which then is fulfilled and he then recognizes that this was indeed a message from God Almighty. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, People who actually uh, read palms uh, or psyches, who actually uh, claim that they are aware of the future and your future and what, what lies in the uh, future for you, without having that basis, we do not believe that they are true to their word and we do not believe that they are from God and we do believe that this goes against uh, Islamic nature in, in fact as, as such. And this is actually, uh, could be considered as associating partners with Allah. And this could be considered as shirk if we go and believe that certainly they will be able to predict my future. I think one of the words here also is predictions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we, in science as well, 
given a certain number of facts, we are able to predict that if these all come true, then such an event could take place. We may sometimes laugh off the weather forecasts that we see on the televisions, but this is exactly what, what is being done by science, is they're taking into the atmospheric conditions that they're available and the data that is presented to them. They will then be able to predict that the following day or the following week will have such, such a weather pattern. That is totally different from what psychics and people who gaze into crystal balls and so on and read your palms do because they do not rely upon facts that are presented to them or any scientific basis. They say, they say that they have the power to see the unseen and that is which is categorically denied by Islam and that is what we do not do. So we do not uh, go to people who predict your futures and we actually pray to Allah and sometimes he does show signs to a, to a person as to what is going to happen in the future for them. So that is again something that is very, very critical and, and absolutely concrete for us is that we turn to God Almighty to see if he will disclose to us something of the future rather than going to psychics or other people who claim to have these if I could come to you, as Dr. Saab has clearly explained, obviously there are certain predictions given on the basis of science. And then, as Dr. Saab has also said, for people of faith, whatever faith they may be, they turn to prayer as a means of guidance and they hope that they will be guided appropriately. An argument would be put by people who are perhaps agnostic or atheist that they put the same kind of emphasis as people do of faith in prayer in these psychics. But one of the discussions I'm sure all of us have had, I've had friends who've raised this with me before, and I've said that when you sit down with a psychic, say, do they not ask you a raft of different questions mm -hmm. about your background, Trying who you are? You. Absolutely. Yeah. And e even these seances, which are sometimes held, you know, to have conversations with those who've passed away, uh, you know, suddenly they'll say, oh, yes, I, I see, you know, George is there or whatever. The fact his name was you know, Brian, well, yes, his grandfather was called George. You know, I mean, there was all, all the... And when a person is quite vulnerable, because quite often these people are, who may approach psychics are looking for guidance, are looking for direction, are feeling very vulnerable mm -hmm. and in need for... They find some kind of solace in I mean, what these psychics, psychics tell them. prey on them. Yeah, really, absolutely. They? they do. I mean, prey on them in the negative sense yeah. <laughs> rather than yeah. in the positive sense that, uh, yeah. yeah, using the different word, of course, yeah. but... Well, no. the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallam, you say, because of all these, uh, all the harm that can come from this, first of all, imagine a psychic tells you, you are going to meet an enemy in two days' time who, who will want to kill you. Mm -hmm. Now, in certain societies, not, maybe not in the West, but in certain societies, people are told these things. Now, some poor chap will come up and meet them, you know, when they're on some, you know, I don't know, go on a trek going yeah. somewhere. And he'll come up and ask them, you know, for the time of day, and they might kill him, mm -hmm. thinking that that's the one that, I, that was predicted. So me, there will be yeah. no end to the harm which will come out of this. Also, the point which you raise is very valid, that these people sometimes are need, in need of solace, of comfort. They're at a vulnerable time of their lives, and people can prey on them. And of course, they never do it for free, do they? Mm. They also do it for money. Mm. So we mustn't forget that factor either. So the Prophet Muhammad sallam, said that if you go to others and don't go to God, Mm -hmm. If you prefer to go, and I'm going to quote uh, the translation of a uh, uh, hadith of Sahih al-Muslim, which is hadith number uh, 2230. Uh, in it, the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said that whoever goes to a fortune teller and asks him about anything, meaning about his future, his prayers will not be accepted by God for 40 days. So this is a dire warning to people that 
if you go to see these people, you'll have your prayers rejected for 40 days. 40 days, a, a month and 10 days of prayers will go for nothing. If, of course, you go to see him again, then you lose another 40 days of prayer, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So, meaning that you will be distanced from God, God will reject you because you reject Him. So people should not be so superstitious and fall prey to these uh, fortune tellers because they do not, as Dr. Khan Sabah said, have the knowledge of, real knowledge of the future. God only reveals this knowledge to whomsoever He chooses as messenger. These are the only ones of His chosen ones who receive this knowledge of the future. And then again, it's only the future which Allah decides to reveal to them. It's not like you can go and ask a, a messenger of God, like, tell me what's going to happen to me in a week's time. You know, you can't like, it's not like a, like an, you know, like, I don't know, like shopping somewhere, you know, like you can order something. You can't do that. So uh, people should be, you know, should not be uh, superstitious. Yes. Gentlemen, Zakamalai and my thanks also to Maria for her question. Um, our next question comes from Arslan Rahman in India. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Arslan Sahib. Um, I have a question relating to, he says, tradition of Indian culture. Um, I'm sure many of us and uh, uh, have seen this happen, and uh, it's a regular occurrence on, in Bollywood films, um, whereby you will see, uh, it's a form of respect and reverence, I would suggest, that you will see, especially it's prevalent in Indian culture, which is the touching of the feet of someone who's respected um, or an elder of the community. Quite often you will see um, a couple doing it to their respective parents to seek blessings, and the, the elder will put their hand over their head as they bow and just touch their feet, not bow to their feet or pray to their feet, just merely touch it. Now, it's a cultural or indeed a religious convention which prevails in India. Um, and Arslan's asking, um, is there any basis to it in Islam? Uh, so we'll first start with you and then we'll come to Jangir Sal on this. Well, showing, showing respect to one's elders is very important in society and uh, obviously we condone, condone that. Uh, so it is something that... Uh, we find in different societies different ways of showing respect uh, to elders. Some people will stand up and greet, some people st stand up and kiss the hand, some people will touch noses to greet and showing respect. So there are many, many ways of showing respect. And in the Indian culture, as you have said, we have seen that touching of the feet to show your lowliness in front of that person is possibly what, what it account, amounts to. But it is actually just a, a, a way of showing respect rather than a way of showing that you're worshipping that person as such. And Islam only uh, forbids us to worship a human being and showing uh, uh, and prostrating to someone and praying to someone. That is forbidden in Islam. But as far as touching of the feet or any other aspect which we show to other people, to show our respect is important and there is nothing that is contrary to this practice as, as such. As long as in our minds and hearts and bodies we know for sure that it is only to God Almighty that we prostrate and we pray to and we turn to as such. Everybody else is subordinate to that, but we do show respect and love, devotion to our elders and to our respect, respected parents and everybody else in society by showing them this. But the most important way of showing respect to our elders is by obedience to them, in fact, isn't it? That if we are obeying them and, and, and carrying out their wishes, then that is actually the ultimate goal of showing respect to our elders 
and this is an outward sign mm -hmm. of what our heart actually has respect for them in that respect. So, I mean, practically speaking, if Arslan or indeed other Muslims see this as a cultural practice in India and that's something they adopt, is there any harm in that? You see, the thing is that it is of course a cultural practice and as Dr. Sabah said, if the intention is good, there's no harm in it at all. Some people bow, some people shake hands, etc., etc. But there are, you know, things which, um, which Muslims are not, not called to do. And we must remember that the, the, the core principle here is we mustn't offend. We must try to avoid offense to the other as much as possible. Hindus will not expect to see Muslims touching their feet. And they're not offended because they know that just as they have a set of, uh, you know, etiquettes, Muslims also have a set of etiquettes. And in India, for example, if, uh, you know, Hindus are, are meeting a great personality and touching his feet, if Muslims come as well and to pay their respects, they'll probably do something like this, or, you know? And yes, and, and bow, you know, and show, you know, respect to the person. And that will be fine. And, and he might even reciprocate and do the same gesture as well. This isn't taken at all as offensive. If, for example, there were people who were recently Hindu and have come with their, this is their culture. They've become Muslim now. But when they're meeting their Hindu elders, if they continue to touch the feet of the Hindu elders, they're not doing it because they're praying to them. The other Hindus are not doing it because they're praying to that person also. Then there's no harm. But in the sense where there are people who push it a little bit further than that, they also do the same to certain statues mm -hmm. as well. So there might be you know, statues <coughs> of human shapes you know, which are standing there, and the people will also have the same gesture. That is a, a gesture of worship. It's no longer re um, respect because that is not a human being. It's some, there's something else at play. So there, of course, Muslims ha have, and this is probably why Muslims have shied away from this <coughs> in the first instance. It's because they do kind of link it to the idolatrous practice which comes with it. But again, we do see people among the Muslims bowing in respect towards other people, and we also bow in prayer. So we have to kind of, as Dr. Saab was saying, you know, kind of separate the sheep from the goats here yeah. and see, you know, what the circumstance is and what, what the intention is and go with that. Go with your gut feeling is probably I, I, the best I think it's fair advice. to say some, sometimes, you know, religion isn't meant to be overly prescriptive in the sense yes. there is a degree of common sense. For example, of we course. were talking before we came on air about the different cultural... Pre I mean, here in England, for example, the, the taking off of that is a form of respect in, yes. in terms of when you go in front of the Queen, for example, you, there is a bowing of the head, uh, which is That's of etiquette. respect and reference. And uh, yeah. in Japan, what we were talking about, you exactly. know, as you present a business card, it must be done with two hands because that's how it's, that's you how know, it's you done. return and it's yes. done with a bow, respective bow in each direction. You know, hopefully at different times, otherwise you end up knocking heads together, but <laughs> which isn't the intention. But you're quite, so, I mean, you get Muslims all over the world and I think the general edict should be you know apply common sense and yes. if it's your culture and it's not against Islam then it's something that obviously uh, is, is rich and I think the intention in India certainly as both uh, Dr. Sahib said, has said and Jahangir Sahib have said is, uh, is a form of respect and reverence. Uh, thank you gentlemen as ever and my thanks also to Arslan for your question. Um, our next question comes from Rashid Ahmed Saab in Canada who's asking about are all creatures created in pairs, Dr. Sahib? Is he um, correct in saying so? Indeed, he points out that there are creatures that sometimes aren't. And uh, is there a just, how does Islam justify all of this? 
You're, you're the doctor on the panel, so I'm going to come to you with this. Well, thing. I'll try to answer it, but I'm sure Jahangir Sahib will uh, correct me if I'm wrong in <laughs> no, that. No, no. He is very well versed in these <laughs> scientific <laughs> matters. Uh, but as, as far as this, this is one of the miracles of the Holy Quran, that it, it mentions you know, many concepts which are discussed 1400 years ago, and only now that man is now trying to understand them and, and fully able to understand them and see that this was in fact a miracle of the Holy Quran. And exactly the same is the case with the, the, uh, with the creation in pairs, that there are many verses of the Holy Quran which actually allude to this. And there's one particular verse in Surah Yasin which actually also mentions this and then, and then gives a little bit more of an explanation on it. Allah says, Holy is he who created all things in pairs of what the earth grows and of themselves and what of what they know not. So this actually clarifies everything that all plant life, for instance, has been mentioned in this, human beings are mentioned in this, and then there are other things which at that time perhaps were not understood are also mentioned in, in that of the, what they don't know. And perhaps even today we do not know the ins and outs of every, everything as, as such. But consider reproduction, whether mm -hmm. it is a sexual reproduction or bisexual reproduction, there have to be a splitting of a cell mm -hmm. and the division of a cell into two cells. Mm -hmm. So the insemination perhaps is done within one cell, but there are two entities that have to be brought together like a positive and a negative, which actually will then form. And this is the pair that the Holy Quran actually talks about in unicellular hermaphrodite organisms, which seem to be is asexual, they do not have a sexual or female or, or, or a male sex. But because reproduction involves this splitting and reproductive cells do split, this is exactly what the Holy Quran has actually talked about. As far as plant life is concerned, the same is, a, is the case as well with plant life, that there have to be a male and a female cells that come together, that are inseminated, and then the division is then carried on as such. In fact, if you look at even within a single cell, it is remarkable that the DNA that we all know about, uh, the actual basis of life, that also is a double helix. It used to be thought that it was a triple helix, mm -hmm. but it is now understood fully as being a double helix, and when that needs to divide, it sort of unzips itself, splits and into becomes two, two, becomes into two, and there we have the pair again. So even the, the double helix of the DNA strand actually is a reference to the pairs that have been created. Not only that, the outer, outer layers of the cell, if you molecular uh, cell, if we uh, scanning microscopes now tell us that there are actually two layers on, of a, a cell called the phospholipids and there again they have a hydrophilic hydrophobic, one that attracts water, one that repels. repels water. So this again is a pair, you know. So even when you go down to the minutest sort of uh, thing that we can see, Allah has created that in pairs. And when we expand this argument to the universe and the galaxies, there again, you know, the scientists are now telling us that everything is a, prayer, is a pair. There is a positive and a negative, and the neutrons and the protons, so these are all pairs. So it is remarkable that the Holy Quran actually, in discussing this subject, opens up for us a very wide range of discussion and absolutely we can, we can say categorically that now we are understanding some of this and uh, in, in future I'm sure 
there will be more that will be discovered by man as such. Uh, Sahib, on this, it just demonstrates again, doesn't it, how science is catching up with religion rather than them okay, saying religion yeah. is one of the past. Here, the Holy Quran book re revealed over 1400 years ago talks about this and it's taken scientific discoveries and microscopes and other techniques to actually determine exactly what the Quran is. Exactly. Said. And I just had one last thing to add because Dr. Saab said everything which I was thinking of saying. <laughs> uh, we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> um, there was just one last thing which was mm. matter and antimatter. Mm -hmm. So every single thing in the universe has its opposite, if you wish, which is in antimatter. And so, as Allah says, He has created everything in pairs. So everything which you see in the universe has its pair elsewhere, which is the opposite of it, you see. Um, so this really is a, a very, you know, marvelous piece of knowledge which was given by God. And God says specifically, He's, He's said this so that you can reflect. And of course, antimatter was discovered precisely because of the reflections of scientists who had to come to the conclusion that antimatter must exist. Mm -hmm. And then they demonstrated that it did, you know. So it's very interesting indeed. Scientists would do well to ponder a little more, you know, how would I say, humbly over the verses of the Holy Quran because many things would be revealed to them. And they might uh, save themselves many years of uh, wandering in the, you know, the deserts of uh, research, whereas they could have got there perhaps faster had they turned to the Word of God. Indeed, and Sir, one other thing yes, comes to mind by looking at Jahangisab's computer. Yes, that uh, after all, the computer is based upon the binary numbers, oh, it isn't does. it? The noughts and the and ones. ones, and it's amazing, isn't it, that the binary system, which is a, another pair, yeah. has actually given us all this technology, Absolutely. hasn't it? If we're even speaking to anybody today, yeah, it's grass, uh, thanks to these uh, to these prayers, uh, pairs again. We're mixing up pairs and prayers a lot well, today. I, I, I was actually going to end by <laughs> yes. saying both of you have now inadvertently perhaps, you know, <laughs> some divine intervention there in terms of use the word prayer instead of pair. And in closing, I, I think the point you said about scientists, you know, if maybe they did emphasize a bit more on prayer rather than mm. uh, uh, they may find uh, their solutions. And indeed, Dr. Abdul Salam, who was one of the most revered scientists within Islam in the modern age, and of course, he, he was a very prominent member and respected member of the Amdiya Muslim community often said that when he found there was a blockage in terms of his own scientific research, it was in religion and in the prayer and indeed in the Holy Quran in which he found the answer. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, my thanks also to Rashid Ahmed Saab um, for your question. Our sort of uh, next question comes, we're going to come back to Europe for this, to Wasim Khan Sahib in Germany. Um, He's writing that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of God be upon him, said that about 70,000 people of his ummah will be admitted to paradise without reckoning. And he's quoted from Al-Bukhari and indeed Muslim, the two of the authentic Hadith books which say, and I quote, they are those who do not ask for a belief in omens or cauterization. Perhaps, Jangisar, if you could begin with this, perhaps just to give definitions, especially of Rukayya, because they will not be familiar with that, and then we can get in perhaps into the detail. Well, first of all, I wanted to say something about the 70,000 people. Mm, We've yes. had this many times on Faith Matters. The word 1,000 in Arabic means a great number, a large number. The word, the number seven is also, you know, denotes the same thing. So when 70,000 is said by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we shouldn't take that too literally. It means a very large number indeed 
of people from the Ummah, which means the, the, the people or the community of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu will be admitted to paradise without any reckoning. Now, as far as uh, the, uh, the three uh, items that have been mentioned here, that those who do not ask for ruqya or who do not believe in omens and who do not use cauterization, those ones will be among those 70,000. Meaning that those who do go for these things, apparently... Yes. So those who do go for these things, they will not be included. Now, ruqya is asking somebody to pray for you, but also to pray over your, your body, for example. They could blow on you or while they're praying or something like this. They, they might apply their hands on you, a bit in a Reiki style, you know, of thing. And, uh, and uh, it's to, to ward off a disease or something like this. There are some people whose prayers are accepted in this way. The Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu has actually advised some people, it's on record, that he advised certain individuals to ask others for ruqya. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the basic thing which is going on here is the uh, lack of trust in God and superstition. Because these three things are, how would I say, the signs of a person who's, who's superstitious usually. In his day, people would rush for a ruqya because they thought their life depended on it. If they didn't ask somebody to pray over them and blow over their body or something at the same time, they just wouldn't get cured. And so they didn't believe in the curative power of God. Mm -hmm. So it was that superstition which is being condemned here. Similarly for the omens, you know, people saying, oh, that cloud is, you know, is in a certain shape, that's a bad omen. You shouldn't go out today, you shouldn't set off on a, on a journey today. You know, looking for omens in this way, that is also superstition. And again, cauterization might seem like a medical procedure in this case, but again, it's something superstitious uh, in the sense that people, when they were ill, sometimes they would run to get cauterized for no reason at all, just because they thought their life depended on it and something bad would happen if they didn't do it. So that, that was the, the basic idea which was being countered here by the Prophet And he said that if you trust in God and you don't go for those things, you know, per se, uh, as, a, as a routine, then you will be admitted into paradise without any reckoning. But if you put these things over your trust in God, then there will be a reckoning, of course. God will ask you, why didn't you trust in me? What were the reasons? So th this is actually what is meant by that. So rem hair removal by laser treatment is far removed, if I could use the yeah. pun, from all this, because there is absolutely no uh, you know, link to, to superstition at all. Now, of course, if somebody is having hair removed for a superstitious reason, I mean, there might be people out there who do that, I don't know, then they should avoid it. But otherwise, it has nothing to do with these three things here. Just picking up on one point, if I may, on the point that quite often within Muslim practice, it's quite common for protection, for example, a parent to a child or an elder to someone else. They, they will recite the durood or the... Uh, the kuls, for example, the kuls, well, uh, like a kind some, of ab kind of absolutely, thing, and then just yeah, and blow it over a person or whatever for their protection. Is that permissible? Is that because you see that happening quite regularly? It is permissible, but the thing is that we shouldn't do it in the sense of superstition once again. Mm -hmm. Like if a child leaves and says, "Oh, I didn't get my ruqya today, so something bad's True. going to happen to me." Yes. No, they shouldn't feel like that at all, mm -hmm. and nor should the parents feel like that. But out of love, if they're actually saying a prayer over their child and, you know, passing their hands over their child out of love, mm -hmm. you know, this is not what's going to protect the child. What's going to protect the child is God. So if they're saying that of that in mind, then there's absolutely no harm. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we see Muslims these days, very unfortunately, falling into all manner of superstitious practices 
And uh, even going to the extent of, for example, tying things on their baby's wrists or you know, putting dots on their foreheads and things to, to, to ward off the evil eye and things like this, they just render their lives difficult by these superstitions. And they're not trusting in God, and this is something which God you know, does not does accept. Not. Just picking up on that point about modern practices, I think uh, Wasim Saab had asked about removal techniques and laser techniques. I think Jangir Saab's already answered that, that, you know, let's look at this in context. But picking up on something Jangir Saab just said about these kind of talisman things, quite often, again, within Islam and certain communities, you'll see a practice, they'll take verses of Holy Quran or a sacred and tie it to the person's arm as a form of protection and give. Again, these are things which are more rel uh, uh, sort of not relevant, prevalent now in mm. certain Islamic communities. Absolutely. And what I meant to ask is now that they're more prevalent, is there any relevance to them? No, but just by the fact that they have become prevalent in some societies does not make them uh, effective to that nature. And again, going back to the traditions of Islam and to the teachings of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, we do not find that this was his practice. But certainly using some verses of the Holy Quran for our protection and uh, reciting those and believing in them and having firm faith that it was God Almighty who would protect us from all harm, is certainly there uh, prescribed by the Holy Prophet ﷺ. You see, by just attaching that to your, uh, to, uh, in, in a chain around your neck or as you say around your wrist, does not give that person a sense that he has a direct connection with God Almighty and that God will protect him and save him. Uh, I think we mentioned in passing the Holy Prophet ﷺ himself every night would recite the three kuls before retiring to bed. The would, last three chapters of the, the Holy last, Quran. Sorry, the last three chapters of the Holy Quran blow in his hands and pass them over his body. So this was the practice of the Holy so Prophet. So doing such a thing, again, is just following a practice of the Holy Prophet, peace yes, be upon him. Yes, there is blessing. Yeah, doing it to oneself. There is blessing in following the mm -hmm. example of the Holy Prophet wasallam, in that particular respect. And by reciting the three chapters of the Holy Quran, where the grandness of Allah the Almighty is, is prescribed, and the protective nature of God Almighty is prescribed, that he is actually the master. Mm -hmm. And turning to him and asking for his protection is what the recommendation of our Prophet Sallallahu And just as a sort of final point on this, Dr. Wasim Saab's question about hair removal techniques, and there are various techniques such as electrolysis and what have you. Jangir uh, Saab's made it quite clear that let's keep the two. But are these kind of techniques, I suppose the sub-question would be, are they permissible, you know, if they're done? Quite often they're done for reasons of um, vanity or cosmetic reasons rather than uh, necessity. Well, uh, beautification in Islam is certainly permitted to, mm. to women in, 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 in essence. Mm. And uh, we find in history uh, that if we look at the history of the Arabs as well, we do find that there were instances of beautification and these are certainly the same sort of things and women should be permitted for that reason. There's a word of caution though, the Holy Prophet has forbidden one thing and that is for women to completely remove their eyebrows because he called that changing the creation of Allah and he actually cursed women who wanted to do that. So there might have been certain women that is in his time who were doing this and he didn't approve of that. But, you know, we can't compare that to, to you know, reshaping the eyebrows. That's very different. 
um, amongst your many attributes, uh, uh, unless you're going to tell me otherwise, I'm sure neither of you is a qualified beautician. So we'll leave that, the issue of eyebrows and such like there. Um, I suppose the only other issue which sometimes does um, arise on these is the, the reverse of that, because quite often, again, out of reasons for vanity, people rather than hair removal seek hair transplants, and that's... Uh, <laughs> constant issue again you know these were kind of practices which were not uh, were disliked by the holy prophet of islam as well and with that we come to the end of today's program i would like to thank our panelists and say jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues and if you haven't found the answer to your question you know what to do email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk